Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 as we make our way through the book of Acts. As Greg makes his way to his seat. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Let's begin reading in verse 16 through 34. Here we go. Now while while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything." And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead." Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. Father, may, may you, you by your grace and your mercy grant us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe, minds to understand. Father, may you, by your Spirit, do do your illuminating work in us, Father. May we have repentant and humble hearts, hearts full of faith. 
Father, for your glory and our good. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Here we come to one of the most talked about passages in the Scriptures, one of the most debated passages in the Scriptures, uh, analyzed passages in the Scriptures. And where I want to start with you is this. I want you to notice where Paul starts and where he doesn't start. Paul does not start with the Jewish gospel. God chose a people to rescue Israel. Through Abraham, he would rescue this people. He doesn't start with this Jewish gospel. And I began to think, well, what, what is our Jewish gospel at which we like to start with? What is, metaphorically speaking, the Jewish gospel which we like to start with? How about, you're a bad person. You need Jesus. You should believe he died for you. And then the world says, or those around us say, what? I'm not a bad person. What? I'm not that bad. I, I'm okay. Anybody heard that before? I mean, just listen to your own heart. Yeah, I'm sure you've heard it before. But what do you do at that point? Where do you go at that point in this conversation? Oh, yes, you are. Oh, yes, you are. You're a bad person, right? Well, the Ten Commandments say this. I mean, where do you go? I mean, just now it's into an argument of, well, you think you're moral. I don't. So, therefore, you need Jesus. Where do you go? What I think Luke is doing for us, because certainly this is likely not all that Paul is saying here, but Paul or but Luke is drawing out for us these important aspects of Paul's speaking. And what Luke is building for us here at this point in the book of Acts is the biblical roots of the gospel, which make it a message with universal appeal. He's making it, he's giving us the biblical undergirding, the foundation of the gospel as a message that has universal appeal to all people, to all races, right? This is, this is just in the flow of the way Acts has been moving anyways, right? Start with the Jews, and now it's moving out to the Gentiles, and once again, that foundation is being laid for how do we understand the gospel so that we might present it to people outside of the Jewish faith. And Paul, though, will end with the resurrected man judging the earth and calling everyone to repentance. But the beginning of Paul's speech is more like a reflection on the book of Genesis. Here Paul is addressing the philosophers. He's addressing the, the thinkers. How is it that you reach a culture of thinkers? And that's largely what we're going to look at this morning. Paul is speaking to those with great intellectual ability. Now here's the reality for us, just in general observation here. Everyone in the Western world, in our culture, considers themselves enlightened and abled intellectuals. So much so that we can, you know, accurately represent something with 140 characters. 
sometimes even with a picture. We're that awesome in our abilities to think. But here's the question, how do you reach a culture of thinkers? I want us to look at three things from this passage. The first one is this. We have to connect through the weaknesses of culture. We have to connect through the weaknesses of culture. Again, we've been looking, last week was how the gospel comes in different packages to, to different people. Same gospel message, but it, but it comes differently to Lydia than it does to the slave girl, right? It comes to, to Lydia as, as something beautiful, and it comes to, uh, to the slave girl as something uh, powerful, and it comes to the jailer as something practical. This week, it comes here as something very thoughtful. Something that requires a bit of thinking. And so, what Paul does at the very beginning is he connects with them through the weaknesses of their culture. Now, what I mean by that is they don't mean the simple brokenness of the world, like murders and rape and those such things. I mean, those are true. Those are weaknesses of a given culture. But that's not what I'm talking about here. That's not what is going on here with Paul. There's a place and a time for interacting with the world through these kinds of issues. And we're called as Christians to bring healing and, and such to this kind of brokenness and these weaknesses. But what I mean here in this passage is the weaknesses of a culture's ideas, beliefs, values, etc. Think of it this way. What does the world hold that is driving its doing? What are the beliefs that drive what they say and do and how they act? Let me give you an example. Our culture values community. We value being together. By and large, people want to be with other people. They want to be in relationships. We want inclusivism. Now, what we know from the Scripture is that this is a, this is a a good thing. This is a, a God-given value that he's, he's actually created us for. That's why we want this. That's why we value this. But the weakness in our culture's beliefs is that we hold the idea of individualism at any cost as well. And so what happens is in our culture, we want community, but we want individualism at any cost and so what happens is the self-assertion in our culture, where I will go get what is mine, coming from this root of it's all about me and my individual, I am going to assert getting what I want, this begins to erode and kill the idea of community. From a very philosophical standpoint, if it's self-assertion, Self-assertion shoots in the foot the idea of inclusivism. How do I know if I'm actually being included if I'm actually asserting myself into the group? How am I know that I'm being welcomed if I'm actually forcing myself upon? They don't, they don't go together. So our culture values community, but then we do things that show that we're weak in this understanding as a culture, the idea of community. Again, this is a weakness in our values as a culture. 
we're going to get to in a few moments, then how does, how, do you, how does the gospel work into that as a point of conversation and ultimately a point of rescue? But for now, it's an example of the weakness of a culture. Now, Paul is in the context of Athens, the intellectual center of the known world. It was the place of thoughts, the place of knowledge, a place of ideas, and a place of progress. Athens is known as the birthplace of democracy. It was the place where ideas were spoken well and challenged well. It was a place where true discussion was had. And then within Athens, there was this part called the marketplace or the Areopagus. It was the place, if you think about it this way, it was the place where finance and business took place. It's kind of like Wall Street. It was the place where art was displayed and enjoyed. Think of the Smithsonian. It was the place of politics and policy. Think D.C. It was the place of religious discussion. And it says here that Paul was going to that place daily to reason with them. To reason with them. To think. To talk. Now, here's what I want you to see at this point. If we're going to reach the culture around us and connect with them through the weaknesses, as Paul shows us here, we must believe that the gospel is strong enough, powerful enough for public engagement. We must believe that the gospel is strong enough. So think about this, at home, at work, at school. Do you actually believe that the gospel can stand up to the beliefs and thoughts of the culture around us? Your boss your children, your co-workers. Listen, so many of us don't engage our co-workers or friends or classmates with the gospel because we don't believe that the gospel can hold up to their issues, their reasons, their struggles. Now, if I could just be blunt, for some of us, that's because we're just lazy. It's because we haven't put the effort into engaging our own issues with the gospel. How are we to ever actually then engage the culture around us with the gospel? Listen, the, it starts in and moves out, but listen, we have such an opportunity of engaging our own situation, our own life with the good news of the gospel and how it changes us that now we get to, when we go talk to other people, sure their situations are going to be different, but you should have all this practice from dealing with it on yourself that now it's just an overflow of what's happening in your, inside you and within the community of Christ. But for some of us, it's just because we're lazy. We're lazy with interacting with our own sin and the gospel. We just meander around throwing out gospel bombs but never allowing the Spirit to actually dig into and apply the gospel to our own lives, let alone the lives of other people. Some of us don't do it because we know the gospel will change us and we don't want to. We just want to stay the way we are. 
So some of us are just lazy. But some of us are weak because we believe that the gospel is good news and that Jesus is sufficient. But we need more faith. We need to be strengthened in believing that the gospel is sufficient to deal with the issues of our culture. So here's what it says. Paul went to reason with them. What's it mean by reason with them? It really means to do the Socratic method. Now there's a time for preaching and proclamation. There's a time for the presentation of ideas. Remember, Paul isn't in front of a church here. It's more like he's sitting outside the student center at Harvard. Or he's standing on the steps of the United States Capitol building as Congress walks in and out. That's more the setting for Paul here. But here, he is asking questions. The Socratic method is basically this. Asking questions, seeking to understand, and then using the arguments of your opponent against them. And so in the middle of this incredible place, remember we just, I just described where Paul's out, where Paul is at. He's in the middle of the intellectual hub of the world. I mean, there's such rich thinking. Many of it misguided, as we'll see. Much of it misguided, as we'll see. But nevertheless, great minds thinking, very gifted people talking about deep and hard-to-understand aspects of life. And in the middle of this incredible place, Paul pulls out the gospel. Paul pulls out the gospel and engages the culture around him. How could he do that? Only if he believed that it was powerful enough to stand. And my question is, do we believe that it's powerful enough to stand? Timothy Keller said this, You need to believe that the gospel is not just for you personally, but it actually challenges the dominant ideas of any particular culture. Again, what I don't mean is let's get into debates or whether or not the Bible is real or the earth is 400 billion years old. I mean, there's a time and place, I'm sure, for that. But let's engage, here we're talking about the heart of the culture, the beliefs of the culture, what they're holding tightly to. What are the deepest held beliefs that are driving what we are doing? Certainly, like, so think about it. Here's an example evolution. Evolution is a belief that our culture holds by and large. But I wouldn't consider that like a driving belief in our culture. There's something underneath of that that's driving the desire to, to believe in evolution. I'm sure there's many aspects to this, but at the very least, the idea of the sovereignty and the awesomeness of humankind drives the belief of evolution. The sovereignty of mankind, that we're awesome, that we could evolve and become who we are. Well, listen, in our culture right now, think about the weakness of that belief. Real easy, real easy to ask the question, and where is that getting the United States at right now? Where has that awesomeness and that great sovereignty and that excellent evolution of our people, where has that gotten us? Listen, we can't figure out how to stop children from shooting up children in schools. We can't figure out how to deal with systemic racism. It's, listen, and it's not like this racism has been a thing for 200 years. 
It's been a thing for thousands of years, and we still haven't figured it out. We haven't evolved to figure that out. These issues show us that humankind is not awesomely sovereign. It's a weakness in our culture that we believe this. When indeed we're broken from the inside and we need help from the outside. Ha! There's the gospel. There's the good news of Christ. Every culture has weaknesses. Keller said this. He goes, "Uh, this is probably oversimplifying this, but he says, the Stoics were the moralists and the Epicureans were the relativists. It's kind of like, uh, I, and this is, I'm not quoting him at this point, this is me, kind of like the Stoics were the modern evangelicals and the Epicureans were the modern liberals. The Stoics were moralists and the Epicureans were the relativists. Let's talk about the Stoics here for again, because this is what Paul's speaking into. Stoics believed in moral absolutes. And the meaning of life was to be good, noble, virtuous, courageous, so on and so forth. That meaning, like meaning for them in life was found when you didn't let life get to you. Some of you have heard the phrase, why are you so stoic, right? Why are you so, and what are they saying when they ask that question? Why are you so emotionless? Because the Stoics believed that in order to make it through suffering, to make it through life, you were to detach yourself from your emotions. You were to just suppress it. You were to just ignore them. You were to be a strong person. Now, we know from the Scriptures, doing well through suffering is great. Being noble, virtuous, etc. Those are all good things. But getting through suffering by detaching yourself from emotions... As I was reminded this past week in a meeting, Dr. Phil says, how's that working for you? But Christianity, though, right? Christianity brought hope and life into the midst of the stoicism. Christianity embraces emotions as a good thing from God. Christianity doesn't twist the reality of suffering by suppressing the difficulty of the situation. Christianity actually embraces the full reality of the difficulty and says the gospel is enough. This is why, listen, this is why, at least in part, all of this great thinking and these, these misguided but yet rich thoughts through people like the Stoics and the Epicureans and such, all of this belief and such will be largely supplanted by the gospel over the next couple centuries. Because the gospel offered real hope in ways that the philosophy of the day, the beliefs of the culture could not bring. Another thought here about the Stoics is Again, they believed in the idea of like moral absolutes. They believed that there was right and wrong. And they discovered this through what they called the logos. It was like this, this idea that there's this like unifying principle behind all of the existence of life. And that if you were a truly a great 
and wise person that you could discover. You could, you could figure those out. So only the, the wisest of the people could discover the real meanings of life, the, the moral absolutes of which culture was driven from. And so if you weren't a wise enough philosopher, you could not discern these things. I mean, think again, just practically, think about the hopelessness of that in a culture. Only the wisest of you could figure this out. The rest of you, you're just going to have to depend on us. The rest of you, you're without hope if you don't listen to us. But Christianity says, oh, there is a logos. There is. There is a structure behind the universe. There is right and wrong. His name is Jesus. And if you want to know the meaning of life, you need to know the person who created life. And here's how you know the meaning of life without being a philosopher. It's about a relationship with a person. Now, to the belief and weaknesses, if you will, of the Epicureans. The Epicureans believed that when you died, that was it. There was no afterlife and that there were some gods, but they really didn't have much to do with humankind Particularly the idea of retribution. The, the, the gods really didn't, you know, they, they were just kind of disconnected. They did, kind of did their thing. For them, the meaning of life was to be happy, to live for pleasure, because this is all that you have. Lots of, lots of pursuit of sexual freedom. Again, Christianity comes into the mix and brings about something different on the idea of sex. Listen, if this is only about personal happiness, then the pursuit of pleasure through sex ultimately will be lonely. It will ultimately be lonely. Why? Because if it's just about your personal happiness, then you're simply exploiting the other person for your own personal enjoyment. And the emptiness that that brings to a life and to a culture. But Christian sex leads to greater unity and fulfillment. Why? Because it's one of giving themselves to another. Laying your life down for somebody else. So here we have the beliefs and weaknesses, if you will, of the Epicureans and the Stoics. What about some weaknesses in our culture? Obviously, there's many. I'm like, which one do I pick, right? And how do we go about this? I'll just use one that's from the text. I think we have, if I could make up a word here, I think a very Epicureanistic culture. A very hedonistic culture, if you will. Pursuit of personal happiness achieved through self-assertion and affirmation, if I could summarize it quickly. I know who I am. No one else does. Now I've got to go get my happiness. Our culture thrives in that belief system right there. I know who I am. No one else does. Now I've got to go secure my happiness. Quoting someone I read this week said this, Societally, we recognize and affirm the dignity of every human being when we respect their profound sense of self-understanding echoed by science, culture, and history. Did you hear those words? That we recognize and affirm the dignity of every person Every human being, when we respect their profound sense of self-understanding, is a very secular thought. 
So happiness is found when I discover who I am through self-understanding and then assert my acceptance on other people. That's what the Epicureans believed. That's what our culture, by and large, believes. I was actually quoting there a liberal Jewish rabbi. But listen, this God, this God in our culture is mean. At every turn, your ego is hurt. If it's about my profound understanding of myself and the assertion of such, at every turn, your ego is hurt. At every request for something different from what you have self-realized, we get offended. And just when you think you've grasped, grasped something that brings you happiness, it's ripped from your hands. So you can see, begin to see the weakness in our culture of that belief. Let me quote someone that was in response to the Jewish rabbi here, a follower of Jesus. He says this, The dignity of every human being is not grounded in his or her self-understanding, but the dignity of every human being is grounded in his or her identity as a being created in the image of God. Now there we have an answer. Now there's something beyond this shallow pursuit of happiness and finding yourself in your own self-understanding. Now listen, here's the question. Can you at least begin to see how God's revelation speaks to the particular weakness of our culture? That's all I want you to see at this point is to go, wow, you know what? The Scriptures do begin to speak. The, the Gospel ultimately will be powerful enough so a couple of other examples. Our culture also values knowledge and at the same time suppresses the knowledge of the unknown God. Our culture values honesty, but it doesn't want to hear all the truth. Right? We, we only want to hear part of the truth. Our culture values tolerance, but it isn't tolerant of evil when it has no grounds to call something evil. You see, again, see the weaknesses in our culture. And that's what Paul's doing at this point. Paul walks into the marketplace with the brilliant minds of his day, the hawkings of his day, and he says to them, This unknown God, I'll tell you who he is. Every culture has weaknesses, and we must believe that the gospel is more than sufficient to confront even the best of ideas held within a culture, because without God, the best of ideas are still broken and ultimately idolatrous. Now, what, Paul, what does Paul do? So Paul addresses... The holes, if you will, in their belief. He, he goes after the weaknesses in their understanding. I'm going to flesh that out a little bit more for you here in a moment. But then what does he do? Listen, if we're going to expose the weakness of the gods of our culture, we must give them a God that is bigger, one that corrects their misconceptions. We must give them a God that is bigger. That's what Paul goes on to do. Paul says, I walk, he walked in and I saw all these gods and all. As a matter of fact, he starts off, which, which 
most commentaries I read said it, he was being kind of sarcastic when he says, I perceive that you are very religious. And then he goes on to, to give them this God that is bigger than the gods that they worship. Again, notice that Paul exposes the weaknesses in their values and beliefs. He says, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. And now he moves to giving them a God that is bigger than their gods. A God who doesn't have the same weaknesses. That's Paul's point. Your God has these weaknesses. My God does not. And so give me give you two things. Your truth about God that Paul shares then at this moment. And truth about humanity that Paul shares in this moment. First of all, really quickly. The truth about God then that shows Paul giving them this bigger God. So I'm just going to give you examples from Paul's talk here that is making God bigger than the gods that they were worshiping. First of all, you have to understand the fundamental issue with idols. And that's really what Paul is exposing here in his little diatribe about who God is and the truth about God. He's exposing the fundamental issue with their idols. All three statements that Paul's about to give represent confusion between God and a location or an image that humans create, or the statements confused with the, the mutual meeting of needs that characterizes human life. What do, what do I mean by that? That in our life, our experience here, there's a mutual meeting of needs. We have to take care of each other in a sense, right? Some of us work to, to provide these things for society. Some of us stay at home to provide this for society, so on and so forth. And it's a mutual need exchange. That's confused in idol worship. That the idol is requiring this of me and I have to give this back to the idol. And, and there's this exchange and that's a confusion that's one of the fundamental issues with idols versus our God, and Paul's going to explain that here in a second. Three things, truth about God, that Paul gives here. One is this, God made the world and everything in it. He does not live in places made by human hands. He does not live in places made by human hands. None of you could make a place for which this God to dwell in. As universal creator and Lord, God cannot be confined to any particular space, sacred or otherwise. The one true God cannot be controlled by those whom He has created. He cannot be manipulated by human religion. Right? If we offer these sacrifices, we can get God to do this. We have forms of that in our beliefs as well. The one true God cannot be controlled by those whom He has created. Paul is directly attacking the worthiness of their idols. Right? He is showing, no, this is your God, this is my God. Your God can be manipulated. Your God can live in places made by human hands. The unknown God, the true God, cannot. Number two, truth about God. He is not served by human hands as if He needed anything. He's not served by human hands as if He needed anything. All of these idols you worship are needy. But God gives everything we 
need. Listen, Paul, Paul right here is attacking one of the basic tenets of humanly devised religion. That God could be served by human hands as though He is one in need. Right? I mean, think about this. Think about how illogical and dishonoring this is to the God of this creation. Since He Himself gives everything for life and breath. He cannot be served by human hands as though He needed something. Instead, God created and continues to give all that is needed by us. We depend on God. He does not depend on us. And that's part of Paul's point here. Number three, he cannot be represented by an image made by human design and skill. I mean, th- again, think about the culture that Paul's speaking into. This is the, like the exchange of beauty and artwork and such at this time. The craftiness and sculptures and such that the people were producing. And he's saying that God cannot be represented by these images, no matter the human design and skill. God is not to be understood, what he's saying, ultimately. God is not to be understood as being essentially like us. Because he is not essentially like us. Fancy word is he cannot be understood in anthropomorphic terms. He is not essentially like this. God's character and ability cannot be limited to what we may imagine and accomplish as human beings. He's saying that God is far above all of this. Now listen, what I I started out here was to help you see that Paul is giving them a God that's bigger than the gods that they worship. That's why all of this deep thought, that's why all this richness He also says that anything created by human hands must be impersonal and unable to relate to us. That's part of his implication here. This God, if if you created this God, if this God was made by your hands, then there's no way He can relate to us. Therefore, it's absurd totally dishonoring to God to represent Him in any form conceived and constructed by human beings. Listen, Paul's argument is a challenge to all forms of religion which seek to make a God to suit the needs of the worshipers. And that's what all worship is apart from God. It is humans trying to fashion a God to suit their needs. And Paul is saying that God is worthless. This God is far worthy of your worship. So if you're going to speak to the weakness of the culture, then we have to give them a God who's bigger than the gods that they are worshiping. Paul moves on from this point. If we go back to the text here, it it won't be on the screen, but he says, 
Again, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he stirred by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of what? Their dwelling place. That they should do what? They should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. So with verse 26 and 27, he gives the kind of two purposes for humankind, for for mankind. What are these two purposes? So here's this God who's bigger than your gods, and here's this purpose for human life that's way bigger than your guys' purpose for human life. He says this first one is to inhabit the earth, to dwell indeed on the whole face of the earth. Like he's He's going back to Genesis 1, 28 and 29. You can read that later. Humanity as a whole, he is talking about here, is to rule over, to care for, and to enjoy God's creation. And yet, in this dwelling place, what he says, Paul says, is that there are specific destinies, specific boundary markers for races and nations, and God is the one that determines these things. What's Paul thinking here? Like in this context, what's he, what's he engaging here? Listen, the Epicureans thought that the purpose of life was just to be happy, to do whatever it took to be happy, for there is no tomorrow. But Paul is saying that's a shallow purpose. That's weak. It's empty. You're created for something so much more, to rule over creation, to enjoy God's creation as you care for it to His glory. Paul said, look, your purpose is pathetic. Let me give you God's purpose. But then the second purpose is this, to seek after God. Your purpose is to seek after God, he says in verse 27, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. God did this. God has orchestrated this plan and this life so that they would seek Him and perhaps reach out and find Him. Now you go, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. So I thought no one seeks after God and so on and so forth. What is he talking about here? I think if you go back and study the Greek, the idea here is not that, they will, that it will actually happen or be unconditionally achieved. The idea here is actually one of groping around for God in the darkness. When the light of special revelation in Jesus Christ is not available. Reaching, like in a dark room, trying to find. That, that's true. We know that of everybody. We're, everybody is longing for something greater than this world. We were created to want that. We were created to reach for something bigger than us. Listen, the Athenians were reaching out, or uh, quoting someone here, the Athenians were reaching out for God in the form of popular religion and philosophical reflection, but the result was a proliferation of idolatry and philosophical ignorance of the true God. So as they're reaching out, as they're thinking what's being produced is not a closer steps towards God or as if they're going to actually reach and grab Him, but indeed greater idolatry, greater philosophical ignorance of the true God. That's the result. 
But despite the blinding and corruption effect or corrupting effect of sin, God's purpose still remains that we would seek after God. The possibility of seeking after God and finding Him is based on the fact that God, he says, is naturally not far from any one of us. Did you catch that in the text? He's actually not far from each one of us, he says at the end of verse 27. What's Paul thinking here? Again, in the context, what is Paul thinking as he's engaging the culture? I think he's thinking that the Stoics, that there is this logos, this unifying principle behind all of existence. That is where we reach out and we find morality and absolute truth, and only the wisest can find it. But again, ask the question, how empty is that? How empty is that? How hopeless is that? It makes the Logos accessible to very few people. But Paul is saying, this Logos is Jesus. He has come. He's the definer of all things. He is the one that creation revolves around. And he says this, and you can touch Him. You can touch Him. The reality finally conveyed by Paul's message is that because of human failure to find God as He really is, He can be truly known only through repentance and faith in the resurrected Jesus. Here's the weakness in your culture. Here's the God that's bigger. He answers the weaknesses in your culture. And this God who you're reaching for but you cannot find. He's known and discovered through repentance and faith in the resurrected Jesus. That's Paul's argument. He's saying this God is bigger than your God. He's worthy of your worship. He's big enough for your mind. He's not just a projection of yourself. And this God is yet close enough that you can reach out and touch Him. He's close enough for your heart. Lastly, what I want you to see is that we must embody the gospel. That's what Paul's doing here. We must embody the gospel. Thirty through thirty-two. At the times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Real briefly here, the times of ignorance God overlooked. I'm not going to do this justice, but it's not as though those sins go uh, unpunished. It's more of the idea of giving a time for repentance. Giving a, a time, a period of time. God being patient. God being patient. What I want you to see primarily here at the end is that the resurrection is outrageous. The resurrection is outrageous. Paul understood the implications of the resurrection, that it's outrageous. He says, How do we know that this God exists? Right? 
Paul is saying, he makes this big argument, the weaknesses of their culture, and here's how the, the God, the creator of the world, speaks to these issues. And this God is bigger than your gods, and here's the purpose of mankind. And we reach out and touch this God only through faith and repentance in Jesus. And he says, how do we know that this is true? Because of the resurrection. Because this man came back to life. Because he was brought from the dead to life. One person said this, Paul does not say to them, look to the grass growing green in the spring or any such naturalistic drivel. He points to the resurrection. He says the resurrection is proof. And how much do we, it's part of the point here, how much do we want to engage our culture with this, again, naturalistic drivel, these other things around us. He says, listen, the, the resurrection was true. You have to deal with that. Why? Why is the resurrection so outrageous? Why is it outrageous today? Because it's completely contrary to, way the world, to the way the world works. Things die. Things decay. Things don't come back to life. The reason this is so offensive is because it takes you out of the normal venue of discussing religious ideas. The claim that a man is raised from the dead as proof? No, the normal discussion of religious ideas is how you and I can be good and how we can accomplish this and how the solar system revolves around us. But instead, the resurrection says that this set of religious ideas is true because there was a man who was once dead who is now alive. And if that's the case, then Christianity must be true for what it is. And that was Paul's argument. Christianity must be true for what it is. And if that's, if the resurrection is true, then it has a claim on your life. It has a claim on your life. It says, God has made a way for you to be right before Him as the creator of the world. And so by faith, believe in the resurrection and repent. And forgiveness is granted through His death on the cross where He died on your behalf. This resurrection lays claim to your life. Now listen, if you're a Christian, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, the resurrection means that there is nothing to live for except Him. There's nothing for you to live for except Him if the resurrection is true. He has to come first. If you are not a Christian, if you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, here's my question for you, and Paul would be Paul's question for you too. Have you come to grips with the reality of the resurrection? That it means something more than just a mere historical idea or fact. In verse 16, it says this, going back to the beginning. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Let me ask you this question. Are you provoked by the idolatry 
around you and inside you. Paul was angered. That's the idea. The provoked here is like he's angry, like a righteous, good anger. He is provoked to anger by the idolatry. Why? Because it didn't match his religion? Because it made him uncomfortable? Because it was ideas he hadn't yet explored? Why? Because he believed that the Lord alone was worthy of worship. That's why Paul was provoked. This God that he knew from the Scriptures, that had blinded him on the road to Damascus, that had rescued him, a Jew who was killing Christians. The same God who is now rescuing Gentiles. That God was worthy of worship. And he wasn't receiving it. That's why Paul was provoked to anger. It infuriated him to see the honor and glory going to their pathetic gods. Their worship of knowledge, their worship of their children, their worship of athletics, their worship of democracy, their worship of wealth, their worship of self-expression. He was provoked. I just wonder how much, how often we're provoked by the idolatry around us. The reality is, is that the lack of provocation or the lack of being provoked at the idolatry around us is probably because we're soft on the idolatry within us. But here's what I want you to see. Paul doesn't, like at this being provoked and angry, he doesn't turn and run. Right? He doesn't go, well, we're just going to move on to the next city. We're just going to leave this group of people away. We're going to go to the next place. Instead, what does he do? He runs headlong into the marketplace daily with compassion, with the gospel, sharing the good news of Jesus. Why? Why could Paul do this? Certainly, because he believed the gospel was enough. But why did he believe the gospel was enough? It's because Paul knew this. That the Lord Jesus Christ looked upon the marketplace of this world. Of you and I. Of Him. And He saw our worship of power. Our worship of success. Our worship of self-assertion. Our worship of individualism, so on and so on and so on. The gods lined on the mantle of our hearts. Jesus saw it, and indeed, he was angry. But Paul knew that Jesus, instead of turning his head in merciless anger and saying, Give them what they deserve, Jesus plunged into the marketplace of our lives. And lays down his life for these people. He comes into the midst of our array of idols and throws them out by laying his life down to pay for the very sin 
we commit in the worship of anything else other than God. Paul didn't turn and run because he knew Jesus didn't turn and run. Jesus lives the life, this righteous life, where he worships nothing other than God, and then he lays down his life for those who worship everything other than God. And Paul says the proof that this happened is in the resurrection. It's in the resurrection. So let me admonish you with this one last thought. This week we celebrate the death and resurrection of our Savior. May He be worshipped as such in your heart and mine this week. Let's pray. Dear God, dear Father, thank You for sending Your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. Father, thank You that the gospel, that, that Your truth and Your news and Your goodness and Your rescue work and, Father, who You are and, and Your being and Your character and Your knowing and Your wisdom and all of this can stand up to even the most prolific, even the most profound ideas of our culture. May we believe it can. May we believe it as we see it stands up to even our own self-perceived profound ideas. May we see in our own hearts where we try to justify sin where we try to wiggle out of wisdom, where we try to do things we know we should not do. May we understand that the gospel can stand up to even those ideas in my own heart and life. And when we hear the gospel before us, may we be humbled and fall on our knees and worship in repentance and faith in the God who sent His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins and raise Him from the grave three days later. And Father, as this gospel becomes a reality in our lives, may it overflow as we speak to the culture around us. Father, thank You for Your goodness and sending Your Son, Jesus, for us. If there's anyone here that's not believing in the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus, may you grant them faith this morning. Father, for it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.